Good morning and welcome to Grace Bible Church. I am thankful, as always, I'm thankful to be here with you all this morning. I, I am so glad as we, you know, we did the equipping class, I was thinking and, and so thankful that we are all here today committed to the truth of God's Word. You know, we need one another. We need one another to, uh, you know, to have fellowship, but we also need one another to combat the lies of, of this world, do we not? We need, to, we need to combat the lies of the world, and we need to come alongside one another and, and do that. As a husband, and as a father, and as a pastor, I actually do, I, I think you know this, I do a lot of thinking about the world that we live in. Uh, the world bombards our families with lies every day. It bombards you with lies. Today, it is popular to attack Christianity by making us look like racist, homophobic buffoons. Your children are being bombarded by these messages every day. They are subject to a psychological operation, if for lack of a better way to put it, psyop, every day, almost every waking minute. The question is, what will you and what will your children believe? That's the question. You know, when I was growing up, when I was growing up, everyone was worried about the messages we were receiving from television. My, my parents talked about it. Every evening, our families would spend time watching TV. Back then, my family had four channels, four channels, three, six, nine, and 12, uh, ABC, NBC, CBS, and PBS. That was it. There was only so much worldliness that you could get from shows like Little House on the Prairie or Cosby, right? Well, yet still people were still concerned about the messages that our families were receiving from the shows that we watch. Well, I, I think you would agree with me that those times feel rather quaint compared to what we see around us today. With the advent, I'll never forget cable television coming to our town, right? They, they strung the wire and they had their little, their little building. I'll never forget that. And then we, had, then we got internet. I mean, not, not back when I was growing up, but later on we got internet. The the, the point is, the volume of available, consumable media has absolutely exploded. Now we have smartphones in our hands. I mean, I have one in my pocket that's connected to the Internet at all times. And most of us have these, right? And, and, and for all intents and purposes, really, these phones are connected to one another 24-7. 24-7. Every person with a phone has the ability to even create unique content. Companies like YouTube, Facebook, Snapchat, and Twitter, and, and a host of others allow us to interact with one another really literally in real time. They also allow us to create content which can be consumed by hundreds of thousands of people. Now, all of this comes with a great opportunity, right? I mean, I, I don't miss that great opportunity. We're even right now on Facebook and with this, with this sermon, and we, we post things to, to Instagram, and, and we, we take advantage of those things. We have pod, a podcast that we do. Yet, we have to recognize it comes with an even greater danger. Obviously, there, we all know about the dangers from things like pornographic material, and, and sadly, the distribution of pornographic material has financed much of the growth of the Internet. Yet, as dangerous as that is, I would argue there's an even more subtle and even greater danger. Uh, the messages of, of love and inclusion that your children and you are consuming. I mean, 
that we need to be accepting of all lifestyles, even if they stand in direct opposition to the truth of the Word of God. At this point, folks in our culture don't know even where to draw the line. It should be obvious to any observant person the line of inclusion is being aggressively pushed. Right now, there are those who desire to groom your children for a lifetime of sexual deviancy. In truth, they're working to normalize sexual deviancy in the name of love. The the world wants to confuse your children. I want you to understand that. They believe what Whitney Houston said, the children are the future. Sadly, most Christians don't have an answer for what we're seeing, and most of us want to just hide our head in the sand. And I'm sure that some of you are going, you're just talking about this stuff again? Let me give you an example. There's a YouTuber named Mr. Beast who has the second most followers on YouTube. If you haven't heard of him, I'm sure your children have. He's wildly popular. He's, he has, I mean, millions of viewers. Opinion show, polls show that Mr. Beast is one of the most well-liked YouTubers on the platform. According to one article, his name is Donaldson, Uh, One article says, Donaldson's audience has been carefully cultivated over the years, attracting young viewers with fun but clean content that parents can trust, end quote. That's what Daniel Darling said. His story is one you should know. His given name is James Donaldson. I believe he goes by Jimmy Donaldson. He started on YouTube during his early teen years and is now 25 years old. But here's what's interesting. He was raised as an evangelical Christian and graduated from a place called Greenville Christian Academy, which is a small, private, evangelical Christian high school in Greenville, North Carolina. The school is just like hundreds of Christian schools around the country. Their stated mission is the same as most of them, to educate in biblical truth and righteousness, to prepare students for life, to be lifelong learners by pursuing excellence, and to distinctively operate as a Christian school. That's where Mr. Beast went to school. Well, according to an April 2022 article in Rolling Stone magazine, in this school, the boys were given demerits for wearing their hair too long and forced to copy Bible verses as punishment. So they're being disparaging toward this school, by the way. According to the same article, Jimmy Donaldson says he used to be observant. You have, to, you have it beat in your head every day. By, by it, I assume that he means the Bible, that the truth. For his part, Jimmy has tried to stay popular across all political and re- religious ideologies. But some of his past comments as, as a teenager have come to, come to caught up with him, come to catch up with him. According to a 2018 article in The Atlantic, during his teen years, he often used homophobic slurs and post in, and in, in, post and in conversations. And in 2021, a spokesperson for him came out and said, he's all grown up and he's matured into someone who doesn't speak like that. Of course, the problem is the world doesn't allow you to stay neutral. It doesn't allow you to say, it's not enough to say, oh, I was young and dumb. You see, today's world, you're forced to declare your beliefs one way or the other. And in most cases, this comes down to a choice of whether you will stand with Christ or you will go with the world. Well, that's the choice that Donaldson, Mr. Beast, had. And in the same April 2022 Rolling Stone article, he also stated that he long disagreed with his church's position on, guess what, homosexuality. Of course, his critics cunningly conflate his earlier use of homophobic slurs with true Christianity. Did you get that? So basically, when he called people 
what he, what he called people, I'm not going to repeat the term, basically that's being used to conflate or act like that that's what we do as Christians. In other words, the world is actively making all Christians look like homophobic and racist bigots. And for his part, Donaldson has chosen to no longer identify as a Christian. By the way, the word identify is very telling. I would argue that we are in Christ. That's how I prayed earlier, uh, that we don't identify that way. We are in Him. We are Christians. We are in Christ. It's a fact. According to Rolling Stone, Donaldson, Mr. Beast, is now identifying as agnostic. He says this, It is such a sensitive topic for so many people around here. I believe there is a God, but there, is so, there are so many different religions and so many people who, passionately, who believe passionately about these things, it's hard to know which religion is right, end quote. There's no doubt that he's been forced by the world to out himself. The days are gone where you can operate without declaring your allegiance to the world and its values. I mean, you can't operate in this world. I know that some of you even have that pressure even now at your workplace. Today, more than ever, if you intend to remain true to your walk with Christ, you need to be solidly grounded in the Word and in prayer. And if you don't have a good grasp on what Jesus actually taught, let me tell you this. If you don't have a good grasp on what Jesus actually teaches, if you don't have a good grasp on the Word of God and understand the Word of God, you will be like the surf of the sea. You will be driven and you will be tossed by the wind. You will be carried about by every wind of doctrine. That's, that's a fact. And that's exactly, that's exactly what men like Jimmy Donaldson faced. And continue to face. And the truth is, here's the, here's the truth. And this is the truth that I live with every day because I have four of them. The truth is, your children are even more vulnerable than you are. I mean, that is the absolute truth. As vulnerable as you may feel, as you see the world, as you see what's going on, as vulnerable as you may feel, your children are ten times, a hundred times more vulnerable. Well, as we return to our study in Matthew 5-7, through the Sermon on the Mount, I want to encourage you the importance of this study. I want you to understand, last week I told you that I believe this study through the Sermon on the Mount may be the most critical study in the life of Grace Bible Church. And let me tell you why. I said this last week, but I want to say it again. Our effectiveness as a church and as saints in carrying out the Great Commission in this increasingly hostile world greatly depends upon our understanding and living out Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount and specifically in the Beatitudes. You, you and your children's future in this hostile world depends, absolutely depends, upon your understanding of this incredible sermon. Dare I say, your eternal future depends on your understanding of the truth contained in Jesus' words. Now more, than ever, now more than ever, we need to understand the words of Christ. So with that, let me pray, and then we're going to read Matthew 5, 3-12 together. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. Lord, I pray as we consider the world that we live in, 
I pray that we would look to you, that we would trust in you. Lord, I know I, I see the pressure. I feel the pressure. I feel the pressure that we all have on us as we consider the world, as we consider all that's being said, as we consider even this morning as we talked about the, the, in the hermeneutics class, the pressure of, of professors who are trying to change your word, who are trying to explain away your word. Lord, there's so, much, so many things that are happening in our, in our world and, and so many ways that we're being attacked. I pray, Lord, that our people here would be equipped, equipped to understand and to have confidence in the Word of God, have confidence in their walk, Lord, that they would be able to walk before you and they would know and they would trust in your Word. Father, this morning as we continue, I pray that you would just be with us in Christ's name, amen. Starting in chapter 5, verse 1, Matthew 5, 1. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the lowly, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons, be called sons of God. Blessed are those who, are, who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. heaven. Blessed are you when people insult and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Well, in his introduction here to the Sermon on the Mount, I've called it the King's Manifesto for His Kingdom. The, our Lord Jesus, King Jesus, reveals what we've said are nine steps to your purpose and ultimate blessing in this life and beyond. And we've already looked at step one, which was possess true poverty. And we've been looking at step two, which is per persevere in learning what offends God. We're going to continue looking at step two because last week my notes were messed up, so I wasn't able to finish it. So you're going to get a little bit more this week on that, and you're going to get a little bonus material. So let's dive in. As you know, we've been studying through the Gospel of Matthew for several months. We've called, as I said, this study the King and His Glory. And as I've said, we are currently in Matthew chapter 5, and we're studying the Sermon on the Mount, the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus gave this sermon during his early Galilean ministry, and I, again, I've called it the King's Kingdom Manifesto because his words, I would argue, summarize his teaching about the kingdom of heaven. And very specifically, his words in the Beatitude, I think, summarize his teaching overall. Truly, this sermon encapsulates Jesus' teaching throughout his early ministry, and that's why we're taking so much time to look at these words that he gave in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. Now, it also proves, as we go through, it also proves, as we look at this, how different God's kingdom law, or Jesus' kingdom law, is from the way of the world. It's completely divergent. Now, before we get to the text this morning, 
I want to give you, as I said, some bonus material, some background information on Matthew that I haven't given before, but I think is helpful as we consider the, the text that we're in. I, ha- I think that it'll help us better understand the history of this incredible book, but it'll also help us understand Jesus' words here in Matthew chapter 5. Now, the Gospel of Matthew has been referred to as the most important document ever written. Matthew has also been called the most influential book in the history of the Christian church. In the history of the church, there's been more commentaries and more preaching in Matthew than any other book. Its importance is underscored by its prominent place in the New Testament. As you know, the book of Matthew is the first book in, or the gospel of Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. To our day, more liturgical churches use Matthew in their church liturgy than any other book in the New Testament. For example, in the words of Dr. Keith Essex speaking about the Lord's Prayer, which may be, uh, as you know, the most recited words in the New Testament, he says, it says this, everybody memorizes, everybody recites, everybody sings the Lord's Prayer as it's recorded in Matthew, not as it's recorded in Luke. I mean, it just underscores the importance of Matthew through, through to the church throughout the church age. Without a doubt, During the church age, the Gospel of Matthew has been the most influential in the New Testament. Romans, the book of Romans, has certainly been the most influential book since the Protestant Reformation uh, the past 500 years. But when you look at the entire church age, around 2,000 years, Matthew has been the most read, the most preached, and the most commented on book in the New Testament. Also, Matthew's Gospel may well contain some of the most famous words and accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. For example, for example, in Matthew's recording of the Sermon on the Mount, we find Jesus's fa- or the Lord's famous prayer, the, the, the Lord's Prayer, and who hasn't heard those words, right? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Who has not heard those words? Who has not heard those words recited even in public places? And most people can pick up and, and, and they understand and know those words, and we know that those words came from the Gospel of Matthew. Now, the Sermon on the Mount itself, as we study in Matthew 5-7, through may also contain some of the most controversial and sobering words of our Lord. Just listen to the Lord's message in Matthew 5-27-30. He says this, You have heard it that it was said, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Then he says this, But if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than your whole body to be thrown in hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. I mean, those are are controversial and sobering words of our Lord. And they may also be among the most misunderstood. Sadly, some people take, have taken Jesus' words, Jesus' command here, as literal by actually plucking out their eyes and cutting off their hands. It's happened in history. Yet, yet that obviously isn't what Jesus intended for people to do. And here's the point, and this is why I bring it up. 
Ultimately, it is critical. I mean, for a book that is so important to the, the New Testament church, for a book that is so uh, widely understood, or widely known, that is, it is critical that we understand Jesus' words, starting with the Beatitudes, and understand Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. And, and we have to be able to f- firmly understand them. And I believe that rightly understanding and rightly applying His words is the key to living for Christ in this hostile world. That's the point. That's what I, that's what, when I talk about, when I open this up with the, the attack on your children, when I open up with the attack on the Christian church, I want you to understand that this here, the, what, what Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus says in the Beatitudes, is the, the answer to the, the, the conundrum that we find ourselves in. Now, from the opening of this series last year, I have stated that the author of this book is Matthew, the tax collector. The early church referred to this gospel simply as according to Matthew. The early church fathers in the second century also attribute this gospel to this man named Matthew, who was one of the apostles. He was the publican. He was a tax gatherer. And that's exactly how he refers to himself in the list of the twelve in Matthew 10.3. He says, Matthew, the tax collector. Now, you may recall that I used Matthew early on in this series. I used Matthew as an example of God's grace towards sinners. Now, you see, Matthew was a hated tax collector. He, he literally existed outside of the Jewish re- religious system. He was an outcast who had no hope for salvation according to the Jewish system. And over and, and, and so, so we, we've seen that, and we've seen and tried to understand who he is and tried to understand uh, the, the, the person of Matthew. Now, over the past few weeks, oh, two weeks, we've studied the first two Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, and blessed are those who mourn. Now, based on what we know of Matthew, the person, can you imagine, just for a moment, as we've considered these words, as we've considered what what Jesus means and continue to consider today, can you imagine how much Jesus' life-giving words would have refreshed a man like Matthew's soul? Take a minute to turn over to Matthew chapter 9. Now, I've argued that Matthew refers to himself in Matthew 9, 9. And Jesus went from there. He saw, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax office, and he said to him, follow me, and he stood up and followed him. Now, in, in verse 10, in Matthew nine ten, we see that Jesus, Jesus was reclining at the table. Now, Matthew says, in the house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. Now, all of this happened in Capernaum. Now, this is probably Matthew's house where the sinners and tax collectors would have been comfortable to gather. So Jesus was there with them among the sinners being hosted by Matthew, the tax collector. Now, in Matthew 9, 11, verse 11, Matthew tells us that the Pharisees didn't like this crowd. They didn't like the crowd that Jesus was spending time with. Now, that should be encouraging to you because you and I are part of that crowd. I mean, I want you to understand that we would be, every one of us would be part of that crowd. Now here, Matthew 9, 11. It says, why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? That's what the Pharisee says. And Jesus gave them this famous answer. It is not those who are healthy who are in need of a physician, but those who are sick. So Jesus is saying, I'm going to the ones who need me. 
I've come to, to, the, the, to the, those who are lost. Again, I want you to consider this in light of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. I want you to notice that Matthew doesn't emphasize the fact that it was his house where they gathered. And we actually know that it is Matthew's house from the other gospel writers. In Mark 2, 14 and 15, Mark tells us that it was Levi's house where this takes place. He saw the, the Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax office, and he said, follow me. And it happened, he was reclining at the table in his house. So this was Matthew, who was also known as Levi. And in Luke 5, 27 to 20, 29, we have the same, the same account. Luke agrees with Mark that this big reception for the Lord and for, these, uh, for all of these people, these, uh, these tax collectors and sinners, was in Levi's house. Levi. And Levi gave a big reception for him. Now, you may, you may ask yourself, why do Luke and Mark refer to this man as Levi while, while Matthew refers to himself as Matthew? What I, well, I would argue this, that it shows Matthew's humility. Levi would have been his given Hebrew name, his ancestral name. He never refers to himself by that name. If you look, if you read through Matthew, he never refers to himself as Levi. Matthew would have been the name that he took when he became a, a tax gatherer, when he, when he was ostracized by his family and by the culture. He would, would have no longer been Levi because he couldn't live up to that name. By the way, if Levi was an ancestral name, that might mean, that could very well mean that Matthew was from the tribe of Levi. They were helpers of the priest. Uh, again, in the words of Keith Essex, he goes from being a helper of the priest to a helper of the Herods, who were the client kings of Rome. You can see, if you look at it, if you think about it, if he went from being a helper of the priest to being helper of the Herods, you, you can imagine how far Matthew had sunk. By God's grace, by God's grace, Matthew went from being a helper of the priest to being a helper of the Herods to becoming a helper of Jesus, our great high priest. What an incredible transformation. You see, Luke and Mark wrote to the Gentiles, so they didn't hold back from calling him by his given name. Matthew never uses Levi, but he still refers to himself even after he had been saved, even after he had become a helper of Jesus, he still referred to himself as Matthew, the tax collector, because he knew he was a sinner. I think this shows the great humility on his part. And what I want you to see is that as we go through these, these Beatitudes, I want you to think about a man named Matthew. I want, to think, I want you to think about how far he had fallen and how Christ had restored him. The graphic illustration of what we see in the Beatitudes. Even though the Holy Spirit uses him to write Scripture, the author of this glorious gospel, which, by the way, we just said is the, is the most influential gospel, the most influential book in the, New Te in the New Testament, in the church age, and the fact that God used a tax collector, a sinner, to, use, to write it. Matthew doesn't do anything to emphasize his Jewish credentials. He is identified as being that sinner. It's amazing to see that Jesus uses a man like Matthew to write this gospel. Again, I, I would argue that that graphically illustrates what it means to become poor in spirit and to become one who mourns over sin, which we've seen in the first two Beatitudes. 
As I've said, he would have been ostracized by the, by the Jews. And it's very interesting uh, that he became this tax gatherer. He, he wouldn't, as a tax gatherer in that society, he would not be allowed to give testimony in a Jewish court of law. Think about that for a moment. He wouldn't be allowed to give testimony. The Jews would never trust the word of a tax collector. I, I, I would tell you that this beautifully illustrates the beauty of God's grace and mercy. I want you to think about this. If the Jews wouldn't trust Matthew, then, then, then think about this. Only Jews who had turned to Jesus would have understood and believed his account of Jesus' life. What an incredible, incredible testimony. It's a judgment that he was used to write this book. I hope you appreciate the fact that Matthew was Matthew who wrote this gospel. Clearly it shows that his target, our audience, has to be Jewish believers. Jewish believers. I mean, it's very Jewish in, in how, it's, how it's written and how it's put together. Uh, and it shows that as our audience had to be Jewish, but I would argue they had to be Jewish believers because Jewish non-Christians would have immediately written it off as penned by this former tax collector. His testimony would have been invalidated by his position. Yet I would argue again that God uses him as further judgment for their willful blind, blindness. Now as we dive back into this incredible sermon, I want you to think about Matthew as an example of God's grace. As you consider God's grace in Matthew's life, I want you to think about your own situation. Some of you have been Christians for many years. I want you to reflect, reflect on your walk with Christ, considering Christ's words. Some of you are relatively new believers some of you have become believers since attending this church. I want you to reflect on what Christ has done in your life. Some of you are not believers. I want you to consider your situation. I want you to come to a point, I want you to come to a place that Jesus describes here. I want you to be able to acknowledge your poverty of spirit. I want you to be able to acknowledge your helplessness. I want you to be able to acknowledge your hopelessness. And I want you to mourn over your sin. And I want you to trust that you will in fact be comforted. Now as we've seen, Jesus introduces this sermon, this sermon and we've talked about it with a series of beatitudes or blessings. Now we've Looked at the first two, that we are blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are those who mourn. And in the prior sermons, we've answered the question, what does it mean to be blessed? What does it mean to be blessed? Well, we've continued, we will continue to use this following definition. I've defined blessing as the state of happiness in our inward selves. It comes from the acknowledgement of the reality of how fortunate we are to have a relationship with, a, with God, the God of heaven, God the Father, through Jesus the Son. This relationship that we have through Jesus, through the, we're in Christ, this relationship produces an inner bliss, an internal bliss, and contentment that comes from an ever-increasing recognition of all that God has done for us and that no circumstance or set of circumstances can change our happiness or contentment in Christ. I know that's a mouthful. But I think it captures most of what it means, even though I recognize that any definition of blessing is going to fall short in, in some way to the incredible reality of the spiritual blessing that Jesus is actually describing here in Matthew 5. 
And ultimately, any attempt at giving this definition will fall short because God Himself is the source of this blessing. He's the source. Therefore, we can only be, we can only be truly blessed by, blessed by partaking in His divine nature. And, and as we've said, as the psalmist promises, in His presence is fullness of joy, and in His right hands are pleasures forever. In this life, in the life that we live today, we can only get a fleeting glimpse of what it means to be blessed by God and to partake in His divine nature. But we can trust that we have an eternity to experience His full pleasure or His full presence and enjoy the pleasures of His right hand. What an incredible truth. If you think about life in this world that we live today and the life that we're going to have in the future in eternity and we can understand that we get a glimpse of it today but that in the future in eternity that we will experience the fullness of joy and that we will experience the pleasures in His right hand forever. What an amazing truth. Then the question is, who are the blessed? The blessed are those who have, been, who have believed in the promises of Christ and are living in the present reality of the Holy Spirit, living within them with an ever-increasing understanding of what He is accomplishing through them. Now, we are walking, we've been walking through these Beatitudes as steps. In my proposition state, statement, I say that King Jesus reveals these nine steps to your purpose and ultimate blessing in this life and beyond. And of course, I'm borrowing from what you see in the world, but the point is, is that this is the true steps. This is what King Jesus commands. And so therefore, therefore we need to look and we need to trust and we need to understand His promise. Now, the first step is to possess true, true poverty. Look at your Bibles in 5.3. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Two weeks ago, we attempted to answer what that means. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Poor in spirit, and Jesus is saying that God blesses a person who recognizes their spiritual bankruptcy. They, they recognize their lostness and sin. They recognize hopelessness in life. They rec- recognize that they are helpless to save themselves. They must see the the person who is poor in spirit must see that they are utterly unworthy of God and are completely dependent upon Him to save them. They must cry out like Isaiah did, Woe is me, for I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Yahweh of hosts, uh, that you must be able to cry out and understand who you are in light of the holiness of God. Ultimately, this describes a person who has come to the end of themselves. They acknowledge and declare in their heart that they are spiritually bankrupt. They are destitute. They have come to be a beggar before God. And ultimately, I believe Jesus is saying this is the beginning point of salvation. That's the reason why in in Matthew 5, 3, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, becoming poor in spirit is the entry point into the kingdom. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Let's look at the second of these nine steps. We need to persevere in learning what offends God. Look at your text in 5.4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, last week we attempted to answer the question, what Jesus means by mourning. What does He mean? Well, to understand Jesus' meaning, we looked at, this considering the context of, of, the, 
uh, of his words. In other words, we, we looked at the, the, the progression that we see in the Beatitudes. In step one, we are confronted with our helplessness, our hopelessness, and our lostness in sin. And we've come to recognize this spiritual bankruptcy that we're spiritual beggars in need of God's grace. The second step then is the inevitable result of step one. When I'm forced to face myself and I recognize the true extent of God's character, when I recognize His holiness, when I contemplate who I should be considering who I am in the light of His holiness, and when I consider that the life that I'm meant to live in light of His holiness, of necessity, if I have truly confronted these realities, this causes me or must cause me to mourn my sorry state. But it doesn't end at that. When I examine my life, I begin to see all the ways I sin and fall short of His glory. And I begin to mourn over my sin. Now, we learned last week that there are other types of mourning. We can mourn over legitimate things like the death of loved ones. We can mourn even over, the, over life's difficulties. And, and yet, we can mourn over illegitimate things like false or pretended piety or holiness. We can, we can mourn over thwarted evil plans that we may devise in our hearts. We can, even, we can even linger in our legitimate mourning for too long, wallowing in what becomes self-pity. But the, the type of mourning that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 5.4, Jesus is talking about a godly mourning. A godly mourning then is a, a deep and abiding sorrow that is produced by the knowledge of our sin and how fall, far short we fall of God's glory. This type of mourning, this godly mourning, can only be experienced by those who have recognized their spiritual poverty and desperate need of God's mercy and grace. We see this type of mourning in the lives of saints like Isaiah. We saw in Isaiah 6-5. And David, we see David in, in Psalm 32 and in Psalm 51. You see, Isaiah, as I said earlier, experienced this type of mourning when he found himself before God in the throne room of God. And David may, may be the greatest example of that after sinning against Bathsheba and her husband Uriah and ultimately against the Lord for this long period of time. He didn't, have, he didn't mourn over his sin. He hid it. He was silent about it. But, but after he confessed, after he owned his sin and confessed them to God, when he confessed them, he began to mourn over it. It was at that time that David recognized God's blessing. He was able to proclaim with great joy. Uh, he was able to proclaim that God had forgiven him. Psalm 32, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man whose iniquity Yahweh will not take into account and whose spirit there is no deceit. And we have to see, we have to see the blessings there in Psalm 32 and we have to read them in light of what Jesus said in, says in Matthew 5, 3 through 12. And after he confessed his sin. David experienced the blessing that Jesus speaks of here in this sermon. We have to see that. We have to, have to see that David came to a knowledge of his sin and he came to an understanding of how far short he fell, had fallen of the glory of God. And as a result, he experienced this deep and abiding sorrow that led to repentance. Now last week I, I spoke of this being a paradox. How can we be happy 
blessed, meaning happy. How can we be happy when we're mourning? But I would argue that this happiness comes as the result of, of this type of godly mourning. Remember, God Himself is the source of this blessing. He's the source of this happiness. Therefore, when we come to this place of deep mourning over our sinfulness, we receive blessing from God. We see that with David and we see it with Isaiah. They mourn and they confess and they repent and God blesses. The question is, how does God bless our mourning? Well, that's where we left off last week. What does it mean to be comforted? He says, for they shall be comforted. Well, the Greek word comforted has the idea of coming alongside someone to encourage or help. Obviously, we get the picture of someone helping us physically, perhaps a nurse or a doctor, but Jesus has the meaning of of supernatural help from on high. Perhaps the best way to understand and explain this word is to tell you that it actually has a noun form. We see that noun form used in John 14, 16, where Jesus promised another helper or an advocate who would be with us forever. Of course, Jesus was promising the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, as a help for his disciples and so we see then that that this advocate we see then that the the christian's true source of comfort is from the holy spirit who comforts us with the comfort of god therefore only believers who have the spirit of god dwelling in them can receive this type of comfort that jesus speaks of In the Old Testament, God is always the source of the believer's comfort. In Isaiah 61-2, Isaiah says that God comforts all who mourn. It's it's amazing. He he comforts all who mourn. In 61-3, says, giving them a headdress instead of ashes, the oil of rejoicing instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. They will, will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of Yahweh, that they may show forth His beautiful glory. It comes to those who mourn over their sin, who have this godly mourning. They will be comforted, and they will be granted all of these promises. In Psalm 23, 4, David joins Isaiah in celebrating God's comfort. He found comfort in God's loving protection. His rod and and his staff comforted him. As I said last week, I love the passage in 2 Corinthians 1, 3. Paul says that God is the God of all comforts. In other words, again, God is the ultimate source of comfort for the believer. Even the comfort that we receive from others ultimately comes from Him. God uses other believers in our lives in order to comfort us. But if if they are in Christ, it's the comfort that, that they've been given, that they're now giving to us, which ultimately comes from Him. I love 2 Corinthians 1.5 where Paul says that the sufferings of Christ abound to us. I think he's talking about himself and Timothy specifically from 2 Corinthians 1.1. But he says, just as the sufferings of Christ abound to us, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. Therefore, we can say that our true comfort comes from the triune God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we are literally surrounded and indwelled with God's comfort as believers. And the key, the key is this morning, this godly morning. Back in Matthew 5, 4, in this phrase, Jesus uses an emphatic pronoun 
It could be translated, they, they, they will be comforted. Uh, Those who mourn, they are the ones that will be comforted. They and only they will be comforted. This usage shows that only believers who are mourning in this godly way will be granted this supernatural comfort from the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In the words of John MacArthur, the blessing of God's comfort is reserved exclusively for the contrite of heart. It is only those who mourn for sin who will have their tears wiped away by the loving hand of Jesus Christ. End quote. The, the verb form used by Jesus shows that this comfort will come from God as a result of our, our mourning over, over sin. It shows that we, shall be, we will be uh, continually comforted by God as a result of coming to this place of mourning. This comfort will never end for the believer. That's amazing. It's absolutely amazing to think about that this comfort that the Lord gives us will never end. Again, I love the words of Paul. In 2 Thessalonians 2.16, he says that God has loved us and given us eternal comfort. Eternal comfort and good hope by grace. Church, if you are in Christ He has promised to give you comfort in the present and He has promised to comfort you in the future. And more than that, He has promised to comfort you for eternity. And all of this is unlocked literally like a key by coming to recognize our sin for what it is. It is an offense to our Creator by coming to the point of understanding what it is and mourning over it. The question is, how do we receive this comfort? Well, again, we come to a knowledge of our sin. There is a beginning to this, but it isn't a one-time thing. It's a continual process in this life. As a true believer in Christ, we constantly are brought back to the knowledge of our sinful flesh. We cry out with Paul over and over, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? There will be, if we're in Christ, there's going to be this continual mourning over sin. Even as you grow in sanctification, you will continue to mourn over your sin, and you will always see the ways that you fall short, that you sin and you fall short of the glory of God. It's continual. It's the nature of the Christian life. We're constantly dependent on Christ. We mourn over our sin, therefore we come to Him and He promises to give us comfort. He lifts our burden and He gives us rest for our weary soul. Promises to forgive us. I love 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Believer, uh, brethren, He cleanses us and He lifts our burden. Oh, Christian, He beckons you to come to Him. I love His promise in Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Do you believe that? Do you believe it? He is the God of all comfort. John MacArthur says, as often as we confess our sin, He is faithful to forgive. And for as long as we mourn over sin, He is faithful to comfort. End quote. What an incredible promise. What what an incredible promise. The question is, who is the man, who is the one who, who mourns? I love 
I love Martin Lloyd-Jones' description of this man. Truly, I can't say it any better to him, so I'm just going to read what he says. I wish I could read it in his voice, but I can't. I don't even have a voice at this point. He says, the man who mourns is a sorrowful man, but he's not morose. He is a sorrowful man, but he, he's not a miserable man. He is a serious man, but he, he's not a solemn man. He's a sober-minded man, but he's not a sullen man. He is a grave man, but he's never cold or prohibitive. There is, there is with his gravity a warmth and attraction. This man, in other words, is always serious, but he does not have to affect the seriousness. The true Christian is never a man who has to put on an appearance of either sadness or joviality. No, no. He is a man who looks at life seriously. He contemplates it spiritually, and he sees in it sin and its effects. He is a serious, sober-minded man. His outlook is always serious. But because of these views which he has and his understanding of truth, he also has a joy unspeakable and full of glory. So he is like the Apostle Paul, groaning within himself, and yet happy because of his experience of Christ and the glory that is to come. The Christian is not superficial in any sense, but is fundamentally serious and fundamentally happy. You see, the joy of the Christian is a holy joy. The happiness of the Christian is a seriousness, serious happiness. None of that superficial appearance, appearance of happiness and joy. No, no. It is a solemn joy. It is a holy joy. It is a serious happiness. So that though he is grave and sober-minded and serious, he is never cold and prohibitive. Indeed, he is like our Lord himself, groaning and weeping, yet for the joy which was set before him and during the cross, despising the shame. End quote. I wish I were that profound. Earlier I gave you the example of Isaiah. He was a man who mourned over his sin. I could also offer Matthew, the tax collector. That's why I brought him up earlier. He was a man who mourned over his sin. He forever saw himself as Matthew, the tax collector. Just think about that. He never saw himself as anything other than that, other than being in Christ, right? The question, are you one, the one who mourns over your sin? Let me leave you with a few practical steps for mourning and receiving supernatural comfort. First, you need to develop a deep doctrine of sin. You need to develop a deep doctrine of sin. You must join the Apostle Paul in saying in Romans 7:18, For I know nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the working out of the good is not. You need to understand the words of Jeremiah and Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it or who can know it? You see, this is not, beloved, this is not, and I want you to mark this, write it down. This is not the gospel of self-esteem. Our joy does not come from celebrating self, but comes from an understanding of self, a true understanding of self, an understanding of who we are in our flesh, an understanding of sin. You need to have a deep doctrine of sin. 
You also need to develop a clear understanding of God's holiness. Earlier we saw that Isaiah came to this understanding. He witnessed God's holiness and which caused him to recognize how far short. And he had a, Isaiah was a man who had a deep doctrine, and a deep understanding of his sin. And when he came in contact with the holiness of God, he, who, had, who the angels were crying out, Holy, holy, holy is, the, is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Uh, then, then Isaiah, as the, as the house of God was filling with smoke, Isaiah said, and I've said it over and over, woe is me for I am ruined. I love the story, and I prayed about it earlier. I love the story of the Apostle John who had a vision of Jesus on the island of Patmos. After seeing this incredible vision of, of the risen and glorified Jesus, he fell like a dead man. He fell like a dead man. Because he understood, he understood who he was. And think about this. This is a man who had walked with the Lord through his entire ministry. He knew him personally. And when he saw his holiness, he fell like a dead man. I love, I, I say this, I've said this a few times. You may have heard me, but I love, I love that he placed his right hand on him and said, Do not fear. Do not fear. Do not fear. And the Apostle Paul also spoke of being caught up into the third heaven, into paradise, and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. In Matthew 17, we talked about it this morning in the equipping hour, Jesus transfigured himself before Peter, James, and John, his brother, and, and, and they also saw had, a, had this bright cloud, and, and the Father said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, listen to him. And what did they do after they heard that? They fell on their face and they were terrified. Uh, and, and, and Jesus again came to them and touched them and said, get up and do not be afraid. Think about the holiness of God. You not only need a deep doctrine, a deep understanding of your sinfulness, you have to have a great understanding of who God is. And you have to see it through the eyes of these men who have beheld His glory and you see how they've reacted. None of us have experienced, none of you nor I have experienced anything like this, but we see it on the pages of Scripture, and we need to understand who He is and who, who these men have seen and what they, how they have responded to it. You also need to develop a high doctrine of joy. I love the words of the Apostle Peter. He was on that mountain and he witnessed the glory of Christ, and he heard the words of the Father, and he encouraged his readers in 1 Peter 1.8, and though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him now, and you, but you believe in him, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Beloved, you need to have a high doctrine of joy in what it really is. It's not a feigned happiness. It's not this thing that you make up. It's not this, I'm always happy. It's not that. It's serious. But it's inexpressible. Pray that you develop a high doctrine, a high understanding of what true joy looks like. I pray with Peter that you will receive as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your soul and therefore, therefore I, I, I pray that you come to see what it truly means to walk with Christ and, and to derive great joy from that and to be comforted. Let me give you three practical ways very quickly. 
You need to read, study, and meditate on Scripture. Back in 1 Peter 1.8, Peter knew that his readers could believe and rejoice because of the witness of Scripture. He had witnessed Jesus' glory on that mountain. We saw that earlier in, in the hermeneutics equipping class, but later he testified that Holy Spirit written by men who spoke from God is the greater witness. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching and, so, and for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be equipped. Scripture reveals the depth of our depravity and it reveals the heights of His majesty and holiness and it reveals the gap between the two. And you need to pray then that God will reveal the truth of these things to you. As we look at these things, we, you need to recognize, we need to recognize that God is the one who reveals truths to our hearts. He does so through the truth of Scripture, but He also works through prayer. As we consider these truths, as you think about these things, I, pray, I urge you to pray to God, to pray to Him that He will reveal the truth of His Word to your heart. I pray that He will reveal the depth of your sin. I pray that He will reveal the majesty of His glory. And I pray that He will reveal just how far short you fall and that He is the one who comforts. I think that's the Lord's heart in Mark eleven twenty four. For this reason I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them and they will be granted to you. When you, are, when you pray seeking truth, the truth with all your heart, He will answer. He will answer those prayers of faith. Therefore, pray in faith that He will reveal Himself to you through His Word. And I promise... I promise He will reveal your sin. He will reveal His holiness. And in doing so, He will give you a joy that's unspeakable and full of glory. Heavenly Father, we thank You this morning again. Lord, I think of men like Matthew who referred to himself as the tax collector. Forever seeing himself as a sinner in need of your grace. Father, I think of men like David who sinned against you yet, Lord, gloriously confessed. Having mourned over sin, you comforted him. Think of men like Isaiah who beheld your glory I think of men like John, Peter. Lord, I pray that we would see the depths and understand the depths of our depravity. We would understand and come to see our spiritual bankruptness before You. That we are spiritually destitute. But Lord, I pray that we would come to see that You are high and lifted up and one that's worthy of all praise, honor, and glory. That we would just get a glimpse of Your glory in the pages of Scripture and that we would come to see how far short we do fall. And that we would cry out to You, woe is me. And, and that You would give us this joy that's inexpressible. 
Father, I pray for each and every person here that they would cry out to you and they would continue to do so and that, Lord, that you would fulfill your promise to comfort. In Christ's name, amen.